Many of you know that I used to uh, work at a Christian school here in town, uh, and I was asked to, um, to, kind of, to I, was, I was a tech administrator at that school, and I was asked to bring a little bit more order to their iPad program that they had at this school. Every, every child uh, from fourth grade on up was given an iPad, and I was asked to bring more order to that situation. Um, and I remember meeting with one of the parents to talk about this, and he said, you know, Rick, the way I see it, technology is a force magnifier. And I thought that was a really interesting phrase, a force magnifier. And, and he said, it allows you to execute your desires very, very quickly. And we should be cautious if we're going to be putting something like an iPad uh, in the hands of preteens, because it allows them to... Uh, act on their desires very, very quickly. He says, whenever we're doing this, whenever we're giving a powerful tool to, to people who's, who are still growing in wisdom, uh, we should do so with a strong degree of discernment. But that phrase, force magnifier, always stuck with me, partly because it's a super nerdy word, <laughs> nerdy phrase, and I thought that was pretty neat, but also because it's true. And out of that conversation... Uh, some really good boundaries and structures uh, came about uh, that we instituted and hopefully saved these kids from some really, uh, let's, let's just say, bonehead mistakes. Uh, and hopefully they've been giving opportunities to uh, actually learn uh, adequately and express some really cool avenues of creation. So in the same way that you and I would have some concerns about putting iPads in the hands of preteens, the Lord Jesus is concerned about another force magnifier that is placed into our hands, and that is money. So if you've ever read through the Gospels, you know Jesus has quite a bit to say about money and the way that it allows us to accelerate our desires uh, in the world around us. And that brings us to today's passage, which is quite a confusing parable, is it not? So maybe you're a first Christian, and, and I don't know, maybe, or maybe you're a new Christian, and maybe this is the first time that you've heard this parable, and you're looking at this, and you're like, what in the world is going on here? So this is called the parable of the shrewd manager, and man, I, like for those of you who've been a Christian time, do you remember reading this for the first time? Do you remember those thoughts that were going through your head? Like I do, I remember reading this and being like, boy, what in the world is going on here? Like, this is crazy. Basically, this guy, he cheats his boss out of money, and then the boss walks in and essentially pats him on the back. He's like, boy, you did it. Good job. And it's like, what? And then to make things even weirder, Jesus comments on this, and he's like, be like that guy. That guy did a great job here. Like, what in the world? So if it's any consolation, scholars are also baffled by this text. This is confusing to a lot. Some say, I actually read this, some say that the shrewd manager here was actually acting as a Robin Hood of sorts, uh, that he was stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, and, you know, hooray for him uh, for doing that. Some also accuse Jesus of being a little ambiguous here in this text. There's some phrases that it's not quite sure uh, who Jesus is referring to. And so some of these scholars just kind of toss up their hands and they're like, well, it's weird, so let's move along to another passage here. But then there's some scholars who adore this passage 
who absolutely love this passage. One is um, Justo Gonzalez. He thinks that we should read this parable before we read any other parable that's taught by Jesus. And then, and I think he's being sarcastic about this, but he, he says, why don't we see any portraits in our churches of this passage? And I thought, that's a great idea. You know, we don't have a building, but a lot of us spend a lot of time wondering how to cover up that sportsmanship code up there. Maybe this is it. Maybe it's this passage, okay? So like, on one end, we, we would have the boss coming in, and on the other side, we'd have the guy like holding back where like large amounts of it are just read it out in ink and then Jesus could be in the foreground going like yeah like that would be a great portrait up here really conducive to our worship right being completely sarcastic there but I I think we get uh, Dr. Gonzalez's point here that there's profound meaning to be found here in this passage and before we proceed let's get one thing straight so this is not literal moral teaching This is not uh, Jesus telling us to cheat our bosses, to lie on our tax returns. Uh, I used to work at the Apple store, and I had a a buddy at the time. I didn't know he was uh, doing some underhanded things. Uh, But what he was doing is he was selling iTunes gift cards to his friends, but he was significantly discounting them, right? So if it was like a $100 gift card, he'd sell it to you for 50 bucks. Well, yeah, I know. Can you believe that? So that's not the kind of behavior <laughs> that's going on here. That Jesus is, well, it's the behavior that's going on here, but it's not for us to do that. So the Bible, I think we're all pretty clear that the Bible tells us to pray for and to submit to authorities that are placed over us. You know, elsewhere, Jesus specifically tells us to, to pray for our taxes. And I, I, I don't think I'm wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the Bible it says, thou shalt not steal or you know, thou shalt not lie, you know, things like that. Um, So like any parable, this is meant to convey to us one or two key truths, and and usually along in these parables, we have some other colorful elements added to the story. So the basic meaning of the the parable is this. Like many other parables that are about a, a manager and an owner, this is a parable that is about God and about Israel. The owner in this story represents God, And the manager represents Israel. Here, Israel has been entrusted by God to keep God's blessing. That is the entire story of the Old Testament there. You might recall the Abrahamic covenant where God says, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And over the course of the Old Testament, God gives his people several resources. He gives them land He gives them the law. He gives them a temple, an entire sacrificial system to explain to his people what it is to be redeemed. He gives them monetary resources sometimes, all in order to make a name known for the Lord. In other words, the Lord gives his people force magnifiers. Uh, They're supposed to magnify God's love to the world around him. But this parable stands as harsh words for the Israelites. He says to them, You are on final notice. Israel is being charged of mismanagement, and time is running out. But this isn't a warning, I think, that is only applicable to the Jews 2,000 years ago. Because you see, friends, we all have been, or we all have been given final notice. King David writes in the Psalms, As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, like a flower in the desert. For the wind passes over it, and then it is gone, and its place knows it no more. 
You see, all that we have is not really ours. All that we have will eventually be taken away from us. So what do we do? What do we do with the resources that we've been given? Well, I think as it stands here, uh, we have three options that the manager has been given. The first option is this. Live it up. Live it up. Do you remember the parable of the rich, uh, the rich ruler where he realizes that he has this abundance of possessions and he decides, I'm going to build some bigger barns. That's what I'm going to do. He tells himself, he says, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And then he throws a huge party for himself. He decides when he has all of this stuff around him to just live it up. And our manager could have reacted the same way. He could have taken stock of what he was entrusted. He could have opened, gone down into the, the owner's wine cellar, maybe helped himself to what's down there. Maybe he would have found the owner's credit card and ordered some pizza or hopped on Amazon and, I don't know, purchased some furniture or whatever. <laughs> you can buy furniture on Amazon. <laughs> it's crazy. Anyway, he could, have, he could have just binged the day away on Netflix and all of that. In light of his impending removal and in light of the authority that he's been given, he could have chosen to live it up, to spend it all on himself. And friends, that is the kind of world that we live in, isn't it? We are in a live it up kind of world. Molly and I were at the Mall of America earlier this week, and it just seems like store after store you pass, the message is indulge yourself, treat yourself. You've worked hard, it's time to play hard. Or you might recall the bumper sticker of a few years ago, he who dies with the most toys wins. That is the motto of our culture, is it not? You see, there's, there's two problems, though, with this live-it-up mindset. One is that it takes life completely for granted. It assumes, or at least pretends, that this abundance will continue indefinitely, when in fact it will end. In fact, if you are living that high-octane, pedal to the metal, work hard, play hard kind of life with no recognition of an end, man, when that crash comes, it's going to hit you hard, hard. You see, living it up takes life for granted. There's a second problem with this, is that it only serves yourself, right? Living it up ignores the suffering of the world around us. It negates the needs of those around us. So the first option that the manager had, which he chose not to take, was to live it up. Now the second option is the exact opposite. Instead of living it up, he could have chosen to just give up. He could have just thrown his hands in the air and been like, nah, all right, whatever. I'm just going to ignore everything. The end has been announced, but I'm just going to pretend as if nothing is different at all. You know, maybe the manager comes in, he clocks in for work but he just kind of carries on, business as usual, not even caring, giving up. The problem with this is that to give up is to lose hope. He's unable to see future possibilities. His imagination is malnourished at this point. And this actually has, has had a pretty strong thread throughout Christian history. This was kind of the teaching of the Gnostic Church, uh, in the early days of Christianity, the Gnostic Church taught that um, all that is physical in this world is, is evil and corroding, while it's the spiritual world that is good and eternal. And I think we even see this today in some threads of fundamentalist Christianity. You may have heard that phrase. I, I heard it a little bit growing up. It's all going to burn anyway, right? Which kind of encourages us to, 
to give up on things. Now, in some ways, this is more dangerous than those who choose to live it up. Because giving up leads to cynicism, to anger. And I think we've seen, um, maybe in our own lives or the lives of those around us, that giving up quickly leads to some dark places. When someone has lost hope and gives up on life, who knows exactly where it will lead. So the manager could have chosen to give up. Well, now let's look at the third option. Let's look at what he actually decides to do. Not live it up, not give up. The manager decides to wise up. Now, after being given his final notice, he brings in all of his, all the owner's debtors before him. And one by one, he goes to these master's debtors and he significantly reduces their bill. Now, I don't know about you, but I think having debts slashed like that would be an awesome thing. I'd be totally thrilled about that. Student debt going away, you know, your mortgage evaporating, things like that. Like, imagine how thrilled you would be to receive news like that. Well, the weird thing, the weird twist in this is that the owner himself comes in and he's like, yeah, good on you. Like, you just made a lot of really great friends. Like I said, he kind of gives him this big high five there. He totally commends the manager. So here's what's going on. The manager, what he does here is he's using the authority that he's been given in his present order to prepare for the next order, for the next way of, thing, uh, of the way that things will be. You see, he knows that he is not the owner of the wealth. Instead, what he's seeing is he's looking beyond that. He's seeing that there are invisible realities at play here that he can, in fact, take with him. So what he's doing is he's throwing caution to the wind and he's using the present order of things for the sake of the new order. You see, the problem with options one and two, the option of, of living it up and giving up, is that both of those refuse to see how this life affects the next. Living it up thinks that all value is here, so enjoy it now. Giving up refuses to see any value at all, but the manager gets it. He wises up. And do you catch what his motivation is in this text? He doesn't want to lose his relationships. He says, I still want to be received in their homes. Now granted, he's, he's still a little uh, wily, shall we say. He, he, he does want to be taken care of. He wants to make sure that he has his, his needs taken care of. But he wants to do it among others. He wants friends. He says, I want to eat with these people. I want to be with them. I want to be taken care of. You see, the manager is in danger. And he realizes he needs the hospitality of friends. So some of you have had the unfortunate experience of, of getting laid off. So you know a little bit about what this man uh, is going through. And in those cases, what do you do? Well, part of it is you swap numbers with your colleagues. You kind of share uh, some job search tips with them. Because in some cases, you want to work with them again. In some cases, uh, you even want to keep hanging out with your, with your friends. And that's this manager, too. He says, I want to enjoy fellowship even in the life to come. And Jesus says, yes, that is it. This man gets it. There is a new age coming, and you can prepare for it. Now, we of all people, we should know how to prepare. Because we ourselves, we have had our debts forgiven. Every week we come here into this room and we confess ways in which we've fallen short. We confess ways that we don't measure up, in which we can't pay the bill. And every week we hear God's forgiveness pronounced over us. 
Every week we taste and see the forgiveness of God. And then we go out embodying God's grace and forgiveness. Furthermore, as people who believe that God uses matter to speak to us, we believe that matter matters as sacramentalists. We believe that God uses things of this earth to convey his grace, things like bread and wine and a table. Then it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus sees a type of spiritual connection between this present ordinary hospitality and the grand feast of the New Jerusalem. There's several examples of this in Holy Scripture. We, uh, if we were to turn a couple pages ahead of our passage in Luke, we would read of the rich man and Lazarus. A rich man who is corrupt and, and doesn't use his resources, doesn't use the things that he has to bless the poor. Uh, Lazarus, who is right outside of his property. And so the rich man is denied entrance into heaven. Elsewhere, Jesus says, Blessed is, is the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we see numerous, numerous parables of the Father's desire to fill his banquet hall with people. And in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that if we extend hospitality to those who are suffering, then we, in fact, are serving Jesus himself. You see, when we use our resources here to make friends, to extend hospitality, to alleviate suffering, then we are experiencing the presence of God now and we are preparing for a heavenly home. You see, friends, we are called to embody God's generous welcome to all those who need to hear his good news. So in conclusion, I have a couple questions for us to ponder. So first of all, what resources have you been given? What has the Lord given you? For some of you, maybe it's wealth. Maybe it is an abundance of material possessions. For some of you, maybe it's intellect. Maybe it's a, it's a sharp mind that's able to recall things very quickly. For others, maybe it's favor with others. Maybe you're just really good at making friends and you've got a huge social credit built up. Or maybe for some of you, it's one of the most limited resources of our day, which is time. You know, for some of us as, as good Midwesterners, we're, we're pretty modest uh, with ourselves. And so we're really bad at naming the resources that we have. So I encourage you, ask your loved ones. Talk to your friends. Talk to others in your life group and ask yourself, what resources has the Lord given me? Second, how might you use those to prepare for new creation? How can you use those to promote hospitality, to simply build friendships, to alleviate suffering and loneliness of those who are around you? You see, friends, we've all been given final notice. So the question is, how will you prepare? Do you live it up? Do you give it up? Or do you wise up? Do you throw caution to the wind for the sake of the gospel? Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the many resources that you have given us gathered here in this room. Lord, you have showered your gifts upon us. And I pray, Lord, that we would not um, hoard those for ourselves or lose sight of the calling that you have placed upon us but instead, Lord, may we invest in your kingdom. We ask us, Lord, for your or in your name's sake. Amen.